Welcome to No Challenges remaining on day four of the 2020 US Open. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and I'm thrilled to be joined by an old friend of mine who I actually, this is your first time at NCR, Amy Featheroff, which is surprising to me, disappointing on my behalf of the last eight years that neglected you so. Amy Featheroff, you know her from the changeover. You know her from her strong opinions about David Ferrer on Twitter. But Amy, <laughs> you're going to be here today in your role as a labor expert, because the labor issues that are coming up in tennis right now. Uh, Amy, you work for the Communication Workers of America, largest communications and media labor union in the U.S., representing about 700,000 members in public and private sectors, although today you're here not presenting the views of your employer, just speaking for yourself here. Amy, thanks for being on NCR. Yeah, thanks for finally having me. God, like <laughs> finally getting around to it. I think that's mainly my fault, but this was too perfect of an opportunity for me. Perfect intersection of my in my interests. I haven't watched a lot of tennis recently, to be honest, but you know, I'm familiar with the structure and situation. And so, yeah, we'll dive right in. Well, the reason and also, I'm not an expert on labor unions, but I do work for one in my day job. Just okay. There you go. Okay. Well, more of an expert than, than me and I'm sure 99% of our listeners. So, here we go. So quite, so basically, the reason we're doing this episode now, we talked actually about doing something earlier in the stoppage period of when they were talking about ATP, WTA mergers. We were talking about that a bit. So it's been kind of an interesting structural year in tennis, understandably, with all the quarantine uh, fluctuations that are going on. But we're going to talk specifically about uh, the formation last week of the PTPA, the Professional Tennis Players Association, as we call it on this show, the which uh, is formed by Vashik Pospisil and Novak Djokovic. Um, and had uh, took a picture with a bunch of members early on. And so a bunch of different, obviously the conversation then spins back to this long running conversation about some sort of players union or unionization in tennis. Uh, the PTPA people seem pretty eager to say what it's not early on more than what it is. And one of the things they're saying is it's not a union. And Amy, just first as an explainer, can you sort of explain to people what the difference between an association is and the difference between that and what a union is and how tennis as players, as independent contractors, one term might work for them, one might not, just if you can sort of break down the nomenclature there, because I think that's something people get tripped up on. So I would say it's it's kind of a distinction that doesn't have that much of a difference. You're, you run into different labor laws in different countries, especially with, you know, I, I'm not sure like what jurisdiction all of this would fall under, but I mean, the basics are that um, an association is just like people coming together and like a union has sort of a more official connotation. It, that sort of implies that you're sitting down at the bargaining table directly with your employer. So um, on the independent contractor thing, uh, this is sort of an ongoing dispute in labor law across the world, but essentially like independent contractors are still workers and you know there's there's a lot of movements for independent contractors organizing and you know like sometimes it can't be like an official union or like you can't be like oh yeah we're a labor union now from a legal perspective really a labor union is a um it's a concept like you know they're they're starting the efforts to kind of just join together. So, you know, I, I would just emphasize that it's it's not really that important. My impressions of a lot of the way that they're framing this is that like, Novak doesn't want to like say anything that would turn people off from appearing like too radical. They seem very cautious about what they want to say. And, you know, I think that's understandable from like 
anyone's perspective because I think this this stuff is very complicated from like a legal standpoint. It's really complicated from the standpoint of there being so many stakeholders here um, with the ITF and with the ATP and with like Roger's agent and you know like there's so much stuff going on there that it's it's like a real minefield but at the end of the day I think that you know the the idea of forming this association which maybe someday will uh, sit down at the bargaining table and be you know a technical union I think it's about uh, the players just joining together and recognizing the conflicts of interest that exist within the ATP structure yeah. and calling them out. I want to read a quote from the lawyer who's been consulting with them from the law firm of Norton Rose in Canada. And apologies if people can hear the thunder that's behind me. There's a lot of thunder going on in DC as we record this, so I'm not sure how much we'll pick up on the audio. Walid Soleiman, who is the lawyer who's been consulting with Vashik and Novak for over a year now, uh, one of his quotes, at this stage, the objectives are very, very humble. The objective is simply to establish an association of tennis professionals amusingly, that's the <laughs> what ATP stands for, uh, that will engage in dialogue, not as a collective, not with an objective of starting job actions, but in a very humble and respectful manner, engage independently with both the ATP and the Grand Slams to help ensure that tennis is a more viable living for folks outside the top 50, and that the stability of tennis for the next generations is there, and that it's not just a sport for the rich and privileged. Novak and Vashik are not making any money off of this. If Novak has had a frustration, it's been his seer and heartfelt focus on the sustainability of tennis. So that kind of go. I mean, I think I've seen that a bit in terms of just starting with the beginning of that quote, talking about the very, very humble part from from the PTBA side of death. Sorry, I got a flash flood warning on my phone. <laughs> no worries. Trying to downplay saying this is nothing to be afraid of, whereas the ATP, we'll get to the ATP sort of what you're going to refer to as the union busting type stuff later. Them being like, no, this is an existential threat to the ATP in terms of how it's organized. And people who don't know, one of the key things of ATP background is the way ATP was has been set up for the last 30 years as the ATP tour which is originally the ATP was a player group, and then it merged with the tournaments to form the ATP Tour. They have a governing structure, basically, that is set up to be a governing board of 50-50, where it's three player reps on the board and three tournament reps on the board who have an equal seat at the table, basically, is there is the design of it. Novak has been saying he wants a players-only, player-focused, standalone organization to represent players better. In your experience, Amy, does that seem like something that's necessary? Can you get change you need from inside, or is something that can be independent and more directly adversarial, I guess, uh, something that is crucial for, for labor. Well, it's interesting that you frame it that way because I think this is one of the, uh, not to call you out or anything. Go ahead, go ahead. I feel like, uh, you know, one of the, the primary like misconceptions that people have about unions is that it's a contentious process. And, you know, I can say from, I'm actually, uh, I'm a, a member of, like our staff union within our like within our union so I've, I've been a union member you know I've, I've negotiated with my employer and and also we hear it from our members who sit at the bargaining table with their employers oftentimes when you sit at the bargaining table on an equal basis and really like explain yourselves and have conversations about your future where like one person can't the employer can't just like unilaterally shut you down um, it's really like, it's an empowering experience. It's not necessarily like, you know, things can get heated, but, um, you know, it's, it's a collaborative thing. So I don't really understand, you know, seeing as I think the PTPA is not, you know, I was reading the letter that the head of the 
ATP tour like sent out sort of, you know, acknowledging that they are aware of this new um, thing happening. And, you know, they say in that letter that it's not a competing body or like, I think I might have to pull up the exact language, but um, you know, it's not, it's, they're not mutually exclusive things at the moment. Like they're not trying to arrange like a competing tour. Right. To super, to supersede it, even just as, but I do think, okay, back up a little bit to what you're saying about being at the table with someone. I do think absolutely there have been major cases where some sort of more structured player advocacy group would have been very helpful, right? Like the example that I talked to when I had Vashik on the show last year, talking about some of this stuff, the example that I brought up for sure was one of your favorites, Bernard Tomic last year at Wimbledon got all of his prize money stripped by the Grand Slam board after they determined that he did not make a good enough effort during the match. After the match had been completed, he got no warnings during the match about lack of effort, which is a code violation you can get. He didn't get any of those. They decided after they didn't try hard enough during the match, which struck me as so ridiculous and wage theft, to use the later term, term for it. For him to go out there, complete his job as it was written out, and then get his money completely arbitrarily yanked, I thought that was crazy. Hashtag justice for Bernie. Absolutely, always justice for Bernie. Gosh, there's so much thunder. I think uh, you can hear it from my, I'm actually... Uh, well, both. I definitely have both of it, too. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Amy's also in DC, so we might have the same storm system over us. My question is, basically, if it's just a player advocacy group and it's just sort of an association that doesn't, that wants to be non-threatening, and let's say, and take that whatever you want it to mean, why would anyone listen to them? Why would anyone invite them to the table in this already very crowded table that is tennis of seven governing bodies. And one of the quotes from Wally Solomon talked about being frozen out from these discussions previously. I'll read it again. He said, we tried before before setting up an association, we tried just doing some basic negotiations, basic dialogues with the Grand Slams. We had well over 100 players signed up, something like 80 of the top 100, and they wouldn't even return our calls. And then he says, my experience with these folks, meaning the governing bodies, has been that they are the most arrogant, elitist, out of touch, living in a bubble counterparty that I may have ever encountered. So how then- That's impressive for someone uh, in his profession to yeah. say. So. I mean, yeah, lawyers tend to, can be hyperbolic sometimes, but true, I, true. I, I, well, I am, I'm, how, does, how does the PTPA get people to take it seriously, right? What do they have to do in terms of showing their power in terms of those to critical mass um, conversations about how many people sign up or what they intend to do, but how does the PTPA get itself to be heard? Well, I think uh, you, you know, you said it, it's uh, getting the majority of uh, members to sign up um, or, you know, getting the majority of the, the people that um, they're thinking are going to be within this uh, theoretical bargaining unit um, to sign up and just demonstrate that uh, that there is critical mass behind it and that there's enough support for it that they can't ignore it. So, you know, I think it's easy for for these like kinds of efforts to be ignored when they're not like sort of official. And so, you know, I think there's there's been some criticism, especially Djokovic, fan favorite Novak Djokovic, criticizing wasn't done in certain ways, basically, that the launch was not ideal in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I think that's definitely, you know, that's that's maybe another conversation. Uh, but we can get to that later. Yeah, how, how the launch went. Pose a question back to you then. So one of the things we talked about before we recorded is in tennis, Obviously, this is getting attention because it's Djokovic, right? If this was just Pospisil and other players ranked us in the top 50, this would be getting a lot less attention. And tennis players, star players, have this really outsized role, outsized power. Foremost, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic third on that list, but definitely 
in the three, and then obviously on the women's side, Serena Sharapova very, until she retired. Osaka now, I think, is emerging very quickly as somebody who's sort of in that short list group of influential players. In terms of critical mass and what people need to be on board or not on board in order to shift the balance of this thing, how do you think that that star player factor goes in tennis, which obviously has, it's a very top-heavy sport. Players act entitled, especially star players act entitled to have like rules based on their own preferences. Like Rafa, when it comes to like time violation rules, <laughs> acts truly aggrieved when something is seen as being an anti-Rafa rule. Yeah, how, how does how does that balance in a sport that's not, it's not this goes to other issues of just not being a normal workforce, right? It's people so, with with very different yeah. lives, very different goals, very different earnings. How, how does this all work? You know, I think that's one of the points of signing people up and getting you know sort of a majority of support. I was saying to you before uh, we got on here that like looking at the photo that was tweeted from like the official launch. Like you look at those players who are like, literally, I couldn't even pick out most of them and not to be not just because of the masks. Like, you know, there were lots of them that I know of, but like, you know, the point is like, not a great photo, just technically blurry and massive, not a good photo. Anyway, but these are the rank and file players. Like these are, if you look at this group of players and you, you know, put them on one side and then you put like Roger and Rafa and Kevin Anderson and I don't I don't know who else. Favrinka, um, I think it's been sort of a bit anti yeah. this. Yeah. Like they're way more representative of like the rank and file players. And then, you know, the other dynamic here is like some of these high profile players are also like very tied in with the tennis establishment. So I think another dynamic to be aware of is players who are, you know, interested in changing things and innovating things. And then there are players who are sort of tied to the status quo because it really benefits them. And oftentimes that's the highest profile players because, you know, they're thriving in the status quo. So it's not to their advantage uh, advantage to push to change things. So that's that's something else that seems to really be the case um, in this organizing effort. One of the things you mentioned in the notes that we were exchanging before this was how one of the things that can lead to success or failure of a unionizing effort can be social dynamics of the people who are involved, right, of the leaders. And so Djokovic, I think, does have a lot of support from the rank and file players on this issue, for sure. But, you know, there are negative perception for her of, of him for various reasons of Isner of this whole the this what you were doing your notes is the stain of Gimelstab you know Justin Gimelstab who was all definitely on Djokovic and Isner's and possibly still sort of side of the the schisms that's existed in player councils in years past possibly still denied that that Gimelstab is involved in any of this and other people are suspicious about that whether because it seems to have his sort of hallmarks on it even though he's been officially out of tennis for a little over a year now how, how do you think that the sort of hearts and minds conversation on this what would you do if you were if you were ptpa in, in order to get people to turn it against veteran at all which is not easy to do in, t- in tennis because those are still even within the locker room those are people who are revered how do, how do you get them to how do you get people to uh to do that so i don't think people need to turn on federer and nadal i think what needs to be done at this point is that Novak and Vasek need to basically reach out to everyone and, you know, gauge what what the concerns are, like what their level of support is. And also, you know, I think when you get a certain critical mass within the players, it will be very hard for Rafa and Roger to oppose these efforts. So, you know, let's say that, uh, they presented a list of like half the people from uh, whatever their size of the bargaining unit is. I think it top five, 400 or something 
uh, I, I don't remember exactly what they defined it as, but you know, like present, uh, present a list of all these supporters and it makes president look pretty out of touch if he's just being like, oh, this is like an outside effort. Yeah, I think, I think it's a matter of just demonstrating like the strength of the organizing effort. And it's really hard. Um, I think that the dynamic that is really like obvious to me as someone who works like with unions on a regular basis and with organizing efforts is, you know, I think there's, there's a really thriving anti-union industry. Like for example, with CWA, part of our membership are uh, the News Guild CWA and, you know, the, the news industry during the pandemic is facing like a really tough crisis and you know there's a ton of layoffs and all this stuff every time even though i don't think we've really like lost an election in quite a while that i can think of like it's a, it's kind of stunning to me that like these employers just continue to fight these really public ugly battles and you know they they hire like union avoidance consultants and uh you know there's a lot of like really sleazy stuff that goes on behind the scenes when organizing efforts pop up. So to me, it's been a little bit clear. I'm sure that there's a lot of like strategizing going on within like the ATP and behind the scenes on how do we kill this effort? You're mentioning that just to interrupt briefly, you were mentioning that in the in the context of the letter that was signed by Federer and Nadal and four of the other members of the ATP council, one of which, one of whom Sam Querrey sent, signed that letter, you know, four, four days ago, has since announced that he's left the council also, and is supportive of the PTPA. You were mentioning sort of the classic sort of union busting language or chilling effects, I guess, that they were trying to do in that yeah. letter. Can, can you can you talk a bit about that? What what you recognize yeah. in this Federer Nadal document, if you want to pull it up and look at it and so the phrases, feel free, but like yeah. what, what you saw in there that reminded you of sort of classic hallmarks of union avoidance, union busting, union chilling, any of those yeah, sorts of phrases. Absolutely. The things that really jump out at me about this letter. So like you said, there's, I mean, there's basically a union busting playbook that this union avoidance industry is, you know, they use a lot of the same tactics. And uh, so after, like, like I said, like just seeing them happen so often, like they're very easily recognizable. They might be a little bit different in each situation, but um, they're just very very common. And, you know, as I was reading the letter signed by Federer and Nadal and Meltzer and Suarez and Sam at the time, and Kevin Anderson, you know, it was kind of interesting to me to, uh, let's see, one of the tactics that I think common one is to kind of question, to imply that by forming a union or forming an association, that there are some benefits that are at stake. So basically just threatening and saying like the union jeopardizes X benefit or, you know, like pension was one was mentioned. Yeah. It, it's really a scare tactic that you see a lot of times, like just basically like reminding people of how good they have it basically now and threatening them with, oh, it could get worse if you talk to each other and organize. No, definitely. So this goes to, and then there's other things that were sort of mentioned that you mentioned, you fly the Tony Nadal quote, where Tony was saying, this is like not the time for a schism in tennis during uh, a yeah. pandemic, basically. And I, I have no patience for that kind of timing argument. This Milos Ronic said yeah. this actually when he was asked about it last week during Cincinnati. Milos Ronic, who just recently lost to uh, PTPA 
future co-president or maybe already co-president uh, Vashik Pospisil today, he was saying that like, there's never a perfect time. And I agree with that completely. Like there's never a bad time for labor organizing. I, as a yeah. principle, I, I, I fully get that. But I would make the argument, uh, the opposite argument that like the example I was mentioning earlier in the news industry, this has been really a good time for people to get together with their employers and talk about like the future and because there are hard, hard decisions to be made. And of course, like the tennis tour is not immune to all of what's going on. It's an entertainment business. They've had to cancel events. They've had to postpone things. It's not like, uh, it's not a serious time for them to be like crunching numbers and like, it can be really more of a process though of like, sitting down together and just deciding like, what do we want our future to look like? Like if we had to completely reimagine what tennis looked like, because we probably do, how, what would it be like? And to just, to have players heard in that discussion is really incredibly important, especially during like a public safety crisis, so. No, absolutely. No, and this is, this is the thing where I, I talked to Vashik about this during the press conference. I kind of pushed back on this because I do think what they're asking for pretty fundamentally is a reimagining, right? Of how these, how the labor structure in tennis works. And this goes to me not totally buying the vagueness of what they're doing or the, or the soft selling of just like, hey, it's just, you know, association, it's a big deal. Because where unions, to use that word, or associations get their leverage, their leverage is a labor stoppage, generally. That's that's the most obvious thing. You're looking at scans of that. But, but no, but, but honestly, like if that's how that you get labor taken seriously, right? It's because what their their value they offer is the labor keeping the company going. So if the players are not going to stop providing the work, why would the employer ever listen to them? Well, I yeah, I so I I don't think that's true. I also think that this is the case with a lot of other organizing efforts, but a lot of these processes start out pretty small. And you know, a lot of times they actually lead to really concrete improvements in the near term for players. Like I think that a lot of these concerns are being talked about for the first time and they're getting, you know, they're getting covered and you have the ATP concerned that the players are not on board with what they're doing. And so right away you you invite better accountability for the employer or for the the stakeholder there to prove that like you know, hey, like if we're going to say this union is uh, not a good thing, then we got to prove that like you don't need it. So that's something that you've seen with, it's not exactly the same situation, but with drivers for Uber and Lyft and stuff, you know, there's lots of organizing, but yeah, you're not like, you can't necessarily shut down the entire, like have everyone stop working all at once. You can have you know, smaller actions, you can, uh, you can win benefits, you can point out, like, make sure that people are hearing about the shitty working conditions. Like there's so many, there's so many steps in between stopping a general strike situation and like just the, the things that can start to be accomplished by having workers talking together. You're talking about, I guess, one of the things you're talking about, general strike would be versus like strategic spot strikes, whatever you would call them, like smaller, smaller stoppages, which would still be a a, a version of a work stoppage for sure. And we saw a version of that last week in in the Cincinnati tournament with what Naomi Osaka precipitated with her walking out for Black Lives Matter causes. And so, yeah, that can be very disruptive. Yeah. I would argue that, you know, that's a good example of like Novak's views 
like I disagree fundamentally, personally, with like many of Djokovic's views, obviously. Historically not a Djokovic fan, people who don't know Amy, but yes. You know, I feel like this is maybe the true test of how much I love unions to have like Novak Djokovic, the public face. You know, I think that the point though, and I think like probably Djokovic would agree with this, is that he's not the dic- he's not running to be the dictator of what the players want. I think that the fact that they're starting out a little bit vague is, and it's, it's the way that it should be. So, you know, I, I think that when you listen to like Novak talk about a union, and then you talk, you listen to even like Vasek talk about it, or you listen to Query talk about it, like it's so different. Each player does have like their own vision for what the union can be. Yeah. And as you bring more people in, like you're basically bringing in, you know, a bigger perspective. And so I certainly think it would be crazy to think that like Novak's, you know, views are like how this is going to play out. So like, you know, Novak might say, oh yeah, like we're not going to boycott anything. You know, we're not going to go on strike. But, you know, ultimately that's not how a union works. On some level it does, but he will have to listen. It's, it is a, a democratic organization and you know the the tennis players have shown that they feel strongly enough about things to do collective actions but 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 to to push back on that a little bit like i do think with it starting this vague it kind of becomes whatever people want it to be in their own imaginations whatever their gripe with the the atp right but that also but also that when it's so undefined and there's no bylaws or anything yet it's so amorphous that could also make it kind of meaningless to me like i mean Noah rubin had a quote when he was talking about it saying well, if it were that meaningless, I don't think the ATP would. Right. Be- I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I don't think I think I think the possibility of it actually collectivizing, making a meaningful, strong body is what has the ATP scared. But I think they're starting off in this very amoeba-ish, shapeless thing that will have to build into something much more solid to be having to have real influence. And there's a lot of steps between the way that well, I mean, what I just start finish my thought. Noah Rubin was saying he what he liked about PTP is that it had ATP so scared. He was saying that if it meeting can scare ATP that much, maybe it's something I want to be a part of because no Rubens, people don't know him. And he was on the show recently is, is you know, uh, very much a critic of the tennis establishment on lots of different fronts. I don't want to say it's ingenuous, but I do think they have bigger goals clearly uh, for what they want to achieve and what they want to, how they want to reimagine tennis than what they're saying now. Of just It was just an association. It's just early on because the ATP tour as it is conceptualized now as it's founded is this, structure of 50-50 tournament player representation on the board, right? If all the players leave, I imagine they would not keep their board seats then also, and it would be a, it would just rebuild the sport, which I'm not saying is a horrible thing. I'm not saying this is a cataclysmic thing in the end of the world for this, for the power structure and tennis to be reassembled, taken apart and reassembled, but it is a meaningful overhaul of that. So I think this is very typical of a union organizing effort. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut them some slack here and, and just, I think the beauty of a union is that it is the workers. It is not, it's a, not a top down situation. Uh, you know, like Roger Federer can't go out there and just be like, oh, I want to have a new tour event because, or whatever, you know, exhibition like you know it's not driven by the people at the top um it has to be an effort where all the members are actually like getting the chance to weigh in and that's kind of the whole point so i think it's kind of necessary for this union to have credibility among the players to listen to the different concerns and 
also to kind of reckon with the questions that are surely going to come up, like, you know, whether their unit uh, includes women, whether, um, you know, like there's so many factors that I think like lots of the members are going to disagree on. You have to start somewhere and then you have to have those conversations. And that's how you start making change. Like this is the only way it's there's no other way to make change than the way that they're doing it. Yeah, you have to start somewhere. That's, that's a fair point. A couple more things. Want to touch on a tweet you sent earlier about uh, again your buddy Novak. You thought that journalists were being handed opposition in uh, shit was the word you used uh, from people who are freaking out about Novak's organizing efforts. And so, yeah, I can call you out on this because. You know, as well as anybody being yourself, people dislike Novak for plenty of non-labor related reasons. He had done plenty of things that rub people the wrong way different times. I don't think this has all yeah. been, you know, an anti-labor no, no. cabal. That is, well, I don't think so, but I like to point these things out because I feel like people oftentimes just don't know that there are these dynamics at play that just always come up. So I think it's important that people just recognize this is something that comes up in just a lot of organizing campaigns. It's part of that union avoidance strategy, which um, I've mentioned and will continue to mention. But some of the things that are also in that union busting playbook are kind of when, especially when it's a high profile effort to organize and they're looking for ways to kill the effort from a PR standpoint, is demonizing the person who's leading the movement, digging up stuff on uh, those people and you know, giving that to people to run with. And, you know, it's, and it's not, that's not actually like a criticism of journalists because I don't think that, um, but you know, if, if someone like sends you a tip, like, oh, Novak is doing something like, you know, you have, that is part of like the reporting process. Like people do uh, alert you to things. I'm not, this is an example. This is no, a complete I Theoretical I, example. I understand. I just don't, I don't, and it's possible because I know obviously, you know, Chris Kermode, who was previous CEO of the ATP uh, before being ousted last year, was friendlier with British journalists. He's a British guy, former tournament director of the Queen's Club tournament. So he had ins with a lot of those journalists for sure. But I do also think with Novak, the vast, vast majority of the stuff he gets is organically of his own making, whether it's Adria Tor being a complete cluster, right. whether it's him having on, you know, ridiculous health gurus to talk about changing water with your emotions, things like that. Those are not, I don't think a meaningful portion of the Djokovic coverage has been at all labor tinted. Actually, I, th I think the guru one is a really interesting one that you brought up because I think for me, like some of the things that he's done lately with the, you know, in during COVID have been way more problematic, but like the way that the media did fixate on kind of like the story of like the guru and like, he's so crazy. Like that's actually, that's kind of a, an interesting like storyline, especially considering that kind of coincided with like, uh, you know, him rolling out this plan. It makes me uh, think of other efforts, like a, a thing that I put in the document, which was basically Amazon executives scheming on like how to brainstorming on ways to paint their, the person who was organizing, you know, being like a weird loser or something, you know, basically just like tying these things in. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I fully understand the, no, char I, the character assassination you're talking happen. about. Yeah. But I, I also just think that Novak, he's number one. So he's obviously, he's, he's much more high profile than your average union organizer, right? So he is a, a bigger attention spotlight, regardless for being number one player in the world winning 
however many Grand Slams, 17, 18, something like that now. As someone who has coughed plenty of crap, obviously people know from Novak fans for years for being percep- you know, perceived as anti-Novak, I've never gotten anything of things I've written about him from ATP or anything that was at all attached to any sort of labor thing. It's all pretty much things that I had to see and be like, whoa, that's weird and bad. Whether it's, you know, having a, the outbreak at Adria tour, things like that. I understand where dots can be there in the in the union suppression, chilling, undermining playbook. I get that. I just don't know. I don't think that holds up in the, this particular. It could in the future. It's something to watch out for, to be clear. Yeah. And also and also more to the point, maybe to weaponize guys like Federer and Nadal, right? When Federer and Nadal who are the friendly, popular faces of the corporate side of things, of the non-union side, be wary of that. Realize that these guys are being encouraged and prompted in these very choreographed ways. Like when they had their when they had their tweets pro being pro WTA merger and more recently, they like quote tweet each other in this way that's so yeah. clunky. And so they just don't they don't behave this way on Twitter. And the puppet strings are very clearly there in terms yeah. of whoever, whether it's just their agents or they're independently, but it's all very choreographed and very inorganic. And that, I think, is is maybe where I would say focus more of skepticism on than just saying, like, people who say Novak Djokovic is problematic are always coming at it from a labor standpoint. Well, I, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I guess, uh, you know, I, I guess it's, it's hard to look at a situation like this, though, and sort of see the culmination of how things have played out and, like, think that it's always going to be, uh, like, a wholesome uh, operation behind the scenes. Sure. No, I expect it to get dirty for sure. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm very much predicting it to be a really ugly battle. For me, it's already uh, killed some respect that I had for certain people. And like you said, um, actually, one of the things that strikes me about the way that discussion is playing out with, it's interesting to me that like someone like Andrew, Andy Murray is going out and sort of being like, well, what about the women? Uh, you know, like, oh, they created this, organization that excludes women. So, you know, I I think from my standpoint, if the women have to be, if they're on board with it, then they would be here. Um, Let's get to the women, actually. That's that's a a topic worth getting into more fully here. Actually, let me point out, though, that what I'm saying here is there are ways to weaponize, like, social justice, even. Sure. Um, And, you know, I think this is something that you see a lot in, like, corporations with the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, you know, basically, like, painting these not very helpful efforts as, like, a, a way of pursuing social justice. And a lot of times it's, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know where Andy Murray stands on this and whether he's been heavily involved in like workers' rights. I think I don't, that, I don't think he's been on either side of, of the of the sort of yeah. I think he's been a floater among this and had both. He was like it was intrigued, but was not into it yet. And was sort of said he was not that like, oh, my gosh, I was going to kill the ATP was not his take. It was more like I'm not in this yet. I have concerns about key things, including excluding the women. Uh, but I wanted to get to a quote that I thought was in, or a tweet that I thought was interesting from James Rogers, who's co-host of the Body Serve podcast, who they did an episode last weekend about a lot of this stuff, too, which was encouraged people to check that out. He was responding to one of the reports was that the Unionization Association, PTPA, movement got energized by the issue in the US Open bubble where Guido Pella and Hugo Delian were pulled from the Cincinnati tournament after their physio had tested positive for COVID and they were sort of contact traced out of that event. And other people thought that was unfair on their behalf. And James said union, but he's James sort of rolled his eyes to this a little bit on Twitter and said unions typically fight for more rigorous health and safety protections for workers. This band of independent contractors is fighting for less. And then he adds, this is not to excuse the ATP for dabbling in union busting. And he follows up that tweet by saying, I'm always on the side of labor, but it brings up an interesting question. What if workers' ideas are just really bad? 
And this goes a little bit to the women. And I think one of the, you know, complaints about the union, there was a tweet that I forget the woman's name, but someone tweeted my article and got like 6,000 retweets talking about how Djokovic was starting this this association with no women and how there's been a history of the men not wanting equal pay, which is very much true. Oh, it's absolutely true. and, and And so leaving leaving the women out begs the question, like, is non-equal pay something this particular union is going to be fighting for? And if it has motives that are, we deem bad for whatever reason, and I would, I, I think unequal pay for genders is something that a lot of people would disagree with as a labor tenant. Can impure objectives or motives behind a union undermine its righteousness well, as a union? I mean, that's an obvious dynamic here. Like, Unions are great, like, but of course, if if workers are gonna like, you know, support a policy that is shitty, like, there are flaws in unions. I mean, one of the most appealing things for me, actually, um, maybe because I'm like a messy bitch who loves drama, is that I mean, unions have to reckon with these issues. You know, you've seen it in the labor movement. You know, there's the question of how much uh, do labor unions go out on a limb to support racial justice, how like on equal pay, there's, there's so many issues that of course, like, you have to get people on the right side of things. But you know, again, like, if you bring in all the players on the ATP, and you know that but that includes Murray, like Murray has to, if Murray really wants to sell, if he wants to sell the idea of equal pay amongst his colleagues, it's sort of on him to do that. So, and he could be part of their efforts, making sure that it's not going in this in this direction. It shouldn't be. But uh, if he does, you know, if if he sort of like it doesn't want to like come to the table in this situation, then it just doesn't seem like he's doing a whole lot of like the legwork from what I've seen. So. And yeah, like you can't expect things to magically get better if you do have like problematic people as a whole. Yeah, no. And, and, and that's where that's where, you know, I think it is fair to sort of examine what was motivating these people and why I, I would feel more confident weighing a verdict on. And I, I like I said, I in abstract, absolutely, I support the idea of a player's union. It's just the, the fact pattern of this one specifically is different and interesting the single gender nature of it. I just, just think it would have been such an easy win for Djokovic and Pospisil to get the women on board. You would have had like twice as many people in the photo, really, if not more. I think you're looking at it though from a PR perspective, whereas- I do think that matters. I think that it's hearts and minds. Well, of course, but, and I work in PR, so yes, I agree. But do we even know that the women want to join this organization? Like, it's sort of like, to me, it's like assuming, oh, well, the men joined it, like, uh, like, you know, why it, it really like, one of the core things that has to be determined when you're organizing is basically what the size of the bargaining unit is. And this is something that often people will like have arguments with. The essential thing is usually like having a community of interest. And I don't think there's a really strong argument to be made that they don't have different financial interests at this point. I don't really see it being 
an automatic marriage here. I don't, you know, it's, it's not like a happy marriage, <laughs> you know, like I think Roger would like to go out there and kind of be like, Oh yeah, we're going to like merge the tours. Cause probably like my agent or, you know, like people want to make money off it and uh, it looks good from a PR perspective. But the reality is that, you know, you have to, you have to hash these issues out. They will not just disappear by going on Twitter and being like equal pay for everyone, even though like 200 ATP players, uh, oppose equal pay for the the women's tour. So why would the women want to join this uh, effort actually with people who have this opposing interest from them? Like like my question to the the women is what are you, like what are you guys waiting for? I would like to see them just make more of a public effort to organize. Yeah, and may, you're right. Maybe they don't want to. But what struck me is that the, they were not invited for this round, right? I mean, there, it was not a coincidence there were zero women there because women were, this organization was, even though last year, and I read the quote, last quote from, from Walid Suleiman, who's the lawyer for PTPA, or, rep- or consulting with them, and I, I don't, not officially their lawyer, quote unquote, but he says, there's an active dialogue going on with leaders within women's tennis. Women's tennis, unlike other sports, is equally as important as men's tennis. It's an interesting sentence. He said, there's a clear recognition of that. Uh, these are tennis professionals, not lobbyists or full-time organizers. They're doing their utmost to get the movement started. And there's no question that in very short order, those dialogues are going to turn to an active and equal involvement as it should be. So just for me, my take on this, and again, this is a PR thing, I think, but given that how vague everything was, that there was, they started without women when they just could have included, it would have been no different had they hadn't started with women, I think. There was nothing stopping them from saying like, hey, women come along too. And so that makes me just a little nervous, again, knowing the characters involved, knowing the issues, how the men feel about women's tennis, largely on the ATP tour, that this could turn into some sort of men's rights organization, <laughs> which would be a, a problem and very unsympathetic. But that's sort of, that's where it's positioned for now. I don't know. If you're not putting women, on, if, you're not, if you're not getting women on the ground floor, that makes me nervous. Because they're such a huge part of the population in tennis. I agree with that. But I think that I do think that the tours are so financially independent at this point that it would be a little bit almost delusional to go in and say this would be like, I think that what you're discussing would be a little bit aspirational, like aspirationally unrealistic uh, in terms of how the the tours actually function now. I don't want to criticize that because I'm all for like imagining a better future I see the two as having to make their own decisions on how to handle their finances. And especially maybe this was something we wanted to talk about as well, but with the idea of the ATP and WTA merger on the table, I think a lot of these questions are probably going to be really coming up in the near future. Um, These like financial decisions and these moral decisions. Yeah, I, I don't think they've done the legwork on this. And I don't think they're there yet um, because, yeah, I've, like, I've read the same things as you. But, you know, the, what gives me hope, I think, about their efforts to join together is that when I really read into their comments, when I read uh, Djokovic's organization, uh, organ- organizing letter, for example, he points out all these dynamics that are really flawed within the ATP structure. And he lays them out in a way that is realistic pointing out how the people in power are abusing that power. And I also think that for the most part, he, the role that he sees for this organization is to improve working conditions for the players from what, and also I don't think that Djokovic is like 
the number one dictator of the uh, this union either. Like I've, I've been really encouraged by the things that Vasek has said, um, and also by the work that he's done behind the scenes, which I think we've actually seen for several years now. So, you know, I think it's it's a mistake to sort of simplify those dynamics and you know let it be painted as like like a men's rights organization. Um, I think it's to me it passes the smell test being motivated for the right reasons. Cause I do think like some of their working conditions are really, really shitty and um, scary, especially because there's a pandemic going on. And like the fact that they're playing sports at all when there's this risk is they're putting their lives on the line for something that can be viewed as it's the entertainment industry. And that's, so that's, that's kind of my, uh, my thing. Well, with your smell test verdict in place now, Amy, thank you very much for being on the show here. One last thing, if you can keep relatively short answer here, what do you want to see next from PTPA? What should their next step be that would let you know, that would make you think that they're on the right track? Whether it's bylaws, whether mm-hmm. it's women, whether it's having a press release with a sort of mission statement more clearly, what would, what would it be? Yeah, I think that uh, the number one step, if they haven't done it already, which I'm not sure, is to just have just have one-on-one conversations with all of the people who are included in this uh, envisioned bargaining unit and conversations have to be two-sided. So the organizers of the union, uh, Novak and Vashek, need to be listening to, you know, because this will be a learning experience for them too. They don't, their experiences are not necessarily representative of all the members. And so to have those conversations where they they lay out their vision, whatever, how vague it might be, but also gather input on what uh, the other members want out of it. And I think that's, to me, that's the most important process to get people on, on board with that vision, to hear the concerns. And then, yeah, like you said, probably having a meeting, uh, convening committees, you know, all the all the regular things that you would do to to move organizational goals forward. At this point, it's really about the legwork that they're willing to do. I know Vashik said um, that he is, uh, you know, they've been gathering all the players' contact information. And I mean, that's a, that's actually a real legitimate challenge with a lot of organizing campaigns. It's, it's very hard to, especially with them being on tour all the time, like probably to get accurate cell phone information and to just gather all of that. But that's, that's really the nitty gritty of what will, you know, make or break this campaign. It has to be really strong organizing. And, you know, you have to have those one-on-one conversations to win people over. Because, you know, you got to pass everyone's smell test. But I actually have, and, you know, I don't, I don't say this lightly as someone who's not a real big fan of Novak Djokovic. Really, you know, I wish them the best. And I hope that this turns out to be, you know, an inclusive movement that actually wins better workers' rights. So on that note, thank you very much, Amy, for being on here. Appreciate it. <laughs> I want to thank you all for listening to and supporting NCR throughout this pandemic stoppage. If you have the ability to support NCR on Patreon as we go on doing these daily episodes, that'd be wonderfully appreciated by us patreon.com slash no challenges remaining i want to thank our one new backer since we last recorded recording this a little bit earlier on the day in on uh thursday so it's possible if you back this late thursday that we wouldn't have seen this yet but thank you to our one new backer so far uh michael palos 
uh, for doing this. I believe it's pronounced Pavlov. It could be Pavlov. It's also not sure. Michael, thank you very much. And thank you to our backers. We, we thank every show. Our Patreon Slam Champ backers, Liz Kendall, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Joseph Haar, Susanna W., and our GOAT backers, Mike, J.O.D., and Charles Cena. That is it for us for today from Day 4 from the Open. We'll talk to you later. Bye.